Our reading this morning is taken again from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 8 through to verse 11. To the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And we ask God's blessing on that reading from his word. So we're looking at today at Revelation chapter 2, and we began a series last week looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. The very, very important first part of the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, in which Jesus is speaking directly to the church of the first century and to the church of the 21st century. Friosiru, the Lamborghini, was from a family of grape farmers and, strangely for an Italian, didn't share his family's passion for grapes and so Ferruccio actually decided he was much more, um, much more interested in engines. And he began to tinker on the farm with tractors. And eventually he began a tractor business called Lamborghini Trattori. And he became very, very wealthy, designing and perfecting tractor engines and tractors themselves. So much so he became so wealthy that he decided to buy... Um, one of the more luxury cars in Italy from a new upstart called Enzio Ferrari. Allegedly, apparently, a, a, great, a great luxury car of the 1960s. And so he bought this Ferrari and began to run it around the, uh, around the streets and the hillsides in which he lived. And he was very unimpressed. The Ferrari, for a start, had a very rough, dry, rough ride for a luxury car, and the clutch was always breaking and having to be repaired. And so eventually, as a mechanic, he was so outraged with this, he decided to have a sit-down meeting with the CEO of Ferrari and went to meet Enzio Ferrari. And he told Ferrari that his car was basically rubbish, and if it was a luxury brand, he needed to improve the ride of the car and definitely improve the clutch, especially in the hot climate of Italy. Enzio did not like taking criticism, especially from someone who actually built tractors. And he called um, Lamborghini, you are a tractor mechanic, and shut the door and pushed him out of his office. Well, as is typically Italian rivalry go, Lamborghini did not take that very lightly. And within four months, had designed and produced his first car and launched the brand name Lamborghini. And ever since... October 1963, Lamborghini and Ferrari have competed 
for money in Italian and in the world market, especially for luxury vehicles. Rivalries. Lamborghini and Ferrari. Rivalries. Ephesus and Smyrna. Ephesus and Smyrna. We heard last week the reason that Ephesus was the first church that Jesus addresses among the seven churches is because Ephesus was seen as the greatest city in Asia Minor. It was seen, even though it wasn't the capital of Asia Minor, it was seen as the greatest city. But there were two cities that claimed that, that title. And the other city that ever forever competed against Ephesus lived 35 miles further up the Aegean coastline. And it was the city of Smyrna. And the fact was that Smyrna was a city with a great past. A city with a great past. But the, the brightness of the history of Smyrna had not always been great. In fact, in one period of its history, it had been attacked and totally leveled. Smyrna had been founded around about 1000 BC by the Greeks, but in 627 BC it was pillaged by King Aliates of the Lydonites. And it was so badly attacked that he leveled it totally. And following that, for nearly 300 years, Smyrna was nothing more than a pile of rubble on which sat, sat a few houses, a few hamlets. Smyrna's glory days, this great city that had been built a thousand years earlier by the Greeks, was now nothing more than a tumbled-down ruin. And then, under the rising star of Alexander the Great, the influence of the Greeks began to increase again. And one of, um, one of Alexander the Great's um, compatriots, he's in fact his commander of his own personal guard, was later on given the whole area of Thrace to look after. And Lysimachus took over this area and he decided that he would make Smyrna great again. And so he did something that didn't happen very often in the ancient world. He planned and he designed a city from scratch. He went to the drawing board and designed how Smyrna would look like. Most cities of that time were rambling. They started in the centre and they began to ramble all around them. There was no design, no concept. And yet here he decided to plan the design of this city. And what was planned and made was had broad streets. It was a far greater city in import than the old city. In other words, the city that died came back to life and was far greater in its new incarnation than it had been in its earlier history. It was a model city. And because it was a model city, it was a beautiful city. As one of the first ever planned cities, it had these wonderful broad straight streets and was renowned throughout the ancient world as a place of beauty. In fact, it had a very famous street of gold. And the street of gold went from the temple of Zeus to the temple of Sybil around the Mount Pagos, a, a 650 feet mountain that loomed very, very quickly above the harbour of Smyrna. And this street of gold was known as the necklace as it went round the bottom of the mountain. Smyrna has been variously called the ornament of Asia, the crown of Asia, the flower of Asia. Lucian said it was the fairest cities city in Ionia. Aristrides, the Greek, 
spoke of the grace that extends over every part of the city like a rainbow, the brightness that pervades every part that reaches up to the heavens like the glitter of bronze on the armour of Homer. Apollinus of Tarana wrote this. He said, Smyrna is the most beautiful of all cities under the sun. Getting the picture here? Smyrna was a wonderful place to be. If you had the ability to visit the old cities of the world, Smyrna would be on your list. That's the famous library, the fascia of the famous library going on to the, to the marketplace on the right-hand side. It was a beautiful place. It was a city that people had on their bucket lists to visit. And it was a prosperous city because sitting on the edge of the Aegean Sea, it had a natural harbour that Ephesus didn't have. A harbour that came around that was easily guarded, that was built into the rock. And it sat at the end of the very fertile Hermas Valley on one of the finest trade routes and was the closest from Asia Minor, the Asia Minor continent, the closest land formation to Athens. So ships could sail the shortest distance from Smyrna to Athens. It was perfectly placed as a great city. And so it soon became very, 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 very prosperous and wealthy. And not only that, it was a political city. It was a clever city. It was a wise city. The Smyrnans began to cultivate a relationship with Rome centuries before the Roman Empire ever became established. And it became famous as a loyal city, a loyal compatriot to Rome itself. It was the first city of the ancient world to actually build a temple to Rome itself in 195 BC. And later on, it was the first city to be granted in the ancient world the privilege of building a temple to one of the Caesars. It was a city that was so loyal to Rome that the famous Roman Cicero called Smyrna one of our most faithful and ancient allies. It was well-connected. It was a political city. It was a shrewd city. And so this city of Smyrna had a glorious past. To you, it's just a name in a book. In the first um, couple of chapters in, in the book of Revelation, but in reality, in the ancient world, you mention Smyrna and people would automatically think of this beautiful place with a glorious past. A city that was known as the resurrected city. A city that was known for its great beauty, its great wealth, and its loyalty. Four key factors in this city that was well known in the ancient world. And four key factors that Jesus uses in this letter when he seeks to encourage the Christians living in the city of Smyrna. Because the Christians living in that city, if Smyrna was a, a city with a great history, the church was a church under great pressure. A church under great pressure. We find the church here in Smyrna suffering and we see that Jesus knows it's suffering. The one who walks among the seven lampstands we read about in chapter 1, the early part of chapter 2, was feeling the church's pain. So in verse 9, he tells the community, I know your afflictions and your poverty. You know, our God is not a remote God. Our God is not out there far away looking down with disdain and indifference upon this world. Our God is a God who knows. 
He knows our pain. He knows our situation. He knows what we're going through day by day. That's why you can pray to him. That's why you can say the Lord's Prayer and begin that prayer by saying, Our Father. He knows. He cares. He's not remote and far away. And Jesus says to this church, I know your afflictions and your poverty. The word here, afflictions, is very strong in the Greek language. It's best translated by the word tribulation. I know your tribulations. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a word that literally talks about the burden that crushes. The burden that crushes. We all carry burdens. I've got my bag upstairs in my office. I carry my computer and my other bits and pieces in. And I'm walking along with my shoulder down here. You know, because it's a burden. But I can carry the burden. It doesn't crush me. But some burdens are so great, they crush you. For millennia, there was an ancient form of torture called the crush. And it was used to elicit confessions from people. And people would be laid on a, on a, on a firm, on, on, on a series of rocks on the floor. Basically, and have a board put over their body. And a series of weights would be put on their chest. Until the point that they couldn't take the pressure anymore. To the point that they were suffocating to such a degree that they'll make any confession to stop the pain and stop the weight. The most famous case of using this method in Britain was that of the Roman Catholic martyr, Margaret Clitheroe. And she, on the 25th of March, 1586, having refused to confess to harboring Catholic priests in her house, was actually subjected to the crush publicly. And she died within 15 minutes under a weight of at least 700 pounds. This was a terrible way the weight is pressing on upon your sternum, upon your rib cage, forcing to break the bones and to crush your lungs. It was a horrible way to die. And the word tribulation is talking about bad. It's talking about a terrible crushing. And the Christians in this area are under a terrible crushing. Doesn't it just show you that beauty is always skin deep? Here these Christians are, in the most beautiful city, in Asia Minor. And yet they've been treated as vermin, treated as dirt, because beauty is only ever skin deep. Smyrna may have been beautiful on the outside, but peeled beneath the surface, and it was nothing more than a veneer. And the church was literally being squeezed between two rocks, between the rock of the Roman Empire and its imperial worship, and the rock of hostile Jewry, who actually didn't like the church and had been persecuting the church ever since the time of St. Paul. They all been squeezed between these two rocks. You see, to not worship the emperor proved that you not only weren't politically savvy, but if you didn't worship the emperor, proved that you were not loyal to Rome. And how could you be a Smyrnian? If you weren't loyal, because the very culture of this city was loyalty. The fact you were a Christian was saying that your Christian culture was more important than your social and your, 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 your local culture. And the Christians began to find themselves persecuted. You see, it was tough to be a Christian in Smyrna. It was, in fact, tough to be a Christian in the ancient world. They were regarded, Christians were regarded at best with suspicion and with revulsion at worst. Why? Well, because Christians were regarded as atheists. 
We were pagans. Why were we pagans? Because we didn't worship the gods of the age. You had to worship the gods of the age, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, the emperors. And what was worse, if you ever went into a church building, you never found any statues. So how can you be a believer in God if you have no statues to God? Christians were literally called atheists and pagans. And they were seen as being anti-family because many families had been split by other people becoming Christians. They were seen as being cannibalistic because they had this strange service where they ate the body of Jesus and they drank the blood of Jesus. It's the famous libel called the blood libel. And, and, and in, the, in the cities where Christians lived, they used to say that children used to disappear and it was the Christians who were eating them during their services. And Christians were seen as being immoral. Why? Because they said they have love feasts, the agape feasts. And these people never used to come along to them, but they used to slander the Christians by saying they're nothing more than orgies. And what's worse, not only orgies, they're so immoral that they're making love between brothers and sisters. They call themselves brothers and sisters, and yet they have these agape feasts. There was a load of misinformation out there in the first century about Christians. And Christians were persecuted relentlessly for nearly 300 years. And that was one of the reasons why these Christians were poor. Jesus said, I know your afflictions. I know your tribulations and your poverty. And here, there's a, that's again a very strong word that's used there in the Greek. Because there's two words for poverty, poverty in the Greek. The first one means people who have very little. The second one, which is the word used here, means people who are destitute. People who have nothing at all. And the fact that they're linked together in the same verse would suggest that the poverty was a consequence of the tribulation. That the consequence was because of their persecution. That to be a Christian was not simply to declare Jesus as your Lord, but was to make you unemployable. Because who would want to employ someone who's disloyal, someone who's a pagan, someone who doesn't work, worship the local gods? So Christian businesses were put out of business. Christians lost their jobs. And maybe even under the mobs, lost their homes and their possessions. And so they became destitute with nothing at all. It's quite clear that they're being persecuted in this passage. And Jesus says in verse 9, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And he's basically saying there that this isn't simply caused by people. Behind all of this is a demonic attack from Satan himself. The Christians were causing an impact and Satan didn't like it and was trying to shut down the church, shut down the Christians. So how do we know that these people who were doing this were actually a synagogue of Satan, as Jesus says? Well, it's quite easy because Jesus says in Matthew 16 and verse 7 and then again in verse 20, by their fruit you will know them. By their fruit, you will know them. You know, we know someone's character, not by what they say, but by what they do. By what you see in their lives. And if you see in their lives lies, if you see in their lives nothing but accusations, then you know they've only got one father. And that's Satan himself. Because we're told in the Bible that he is... The father of lies, John 8, verse 33. Jesus says to the Pharisees, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. 
not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. People who lie and use lies as a means to gain power and control are merely speaking the language of the devil. And you know who their father is. By their fruit you shall know them. And one of the great accusations, one of the great uh, uh, titles of Satan likewise, found in Revelation 20, 12 and verse 10, and seen actually in the, in the book of Job as well, is Satan is also an accuser. He's called the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the brothers and sisters. And so these lies and accusations display their father's traits. Basically, Jesus is saying, I know who's doing this. I know who's behind this. It is Satan himself. In other words, underneath the glory and the glow of Smyrna, there's a very dark power. And this isn't new. Jesus warned his Christians, his believers, his followers, that they would have to suffer persecution. Matthew 24, verse 9. Jesus said, you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I've told you these things, that in me you have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Those of you who've been around a few years like me will remember a hit single in 1987 by Belinda Carlisle when she told us, heaven is a place on earth. And that's what people want to believe. And that's why people are trying to build their kingdoms here on earth. But Belinda Carlisle was wrong. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And we should not expect earth to be heaven. Heaven is to come. Heaven will be what Jesus reveals when he returns in all his glory. We aren't experiencing heaven on earth. And these Christians in Smyrna certainly weren't. Jesus said, I know your afflictions and your poverty. And then he says, but you are rich. How? Is he being unfair? Is he he joking with them? Is he being sarcastic? No. Because Jesus told them earlier on in John 16, I told you these things that in me you will have peace. And as long as the believers in Smyrna have the Lord Jesus, they are richer beyond compare. They are rich because they had the King of Kings as their Lord and their Saviour. They are rich because they had heaven, not on earth, but in their hearts. They were rich because they were going in the right direction. Back in uh, June 1944, we launched a massive attack, the largest ever attack the world has ever seen upon the beaches of Normandy. And for that moment, when the first boots landed on the sands of France, Hitler's future was absolutely settled. He lost the war at that point. In fact, he lost the war when he attacked Russia. But in in reality, it was just a matter of time. There was many battles. Many, many, many men and people would die in the months that followed. But basically it was a foregone conclusion that Germany would fall and that that, um, Berlin would be overtaken. And 2,000 years ago when Jesus died upon the cross, the war was won. Jesus was victorious. The power of darkness was broken by Jesus' work upon the cross. 
But the battles still go on. And Christians in the 21st century are still facing those battles. Only in the last few weeks, we've had Christians beheaded in Indonesia. For the last few years, there's been Christians in their hundreds being killed for their faith in Nigeria. There's been Christians killed in West Africa and in Eastern Africa, places like South Sudan and in Northern Sudan. Heaven is a place not on this earth. Heaven is a place that's coming. There will be great pressure in this world, Jesus said. But if we see here a history, see here a city with a great um, past, and we see here also not only a city with a great past, but a church under great pressure, finally we see this, a speaker with a great promise. A speaker with a great promise. Because Jesus says to these people, I know your afflictions. I know your tribulations. In verse 8, he says, To the angel of a church in Smyrna write this, These are the words of him who was the first and the last, who died and came alive again. And Jesus says two things about himself in verse 8. He says this first of all. He says he is the first and the last. He is the first and the last. Again, this doesn't resonate with us so much. But if you lived in Smyrna, that would blow your socks off. Because Smyrna was, used to boast that it was the first. It was the first city in Asia Minor. It was the greatest city in Asia Minor. It was far greater than Ephesus. You belong to Smyrna and you belong to the first team. You live in Smyrna, you belong to the first. You are part of the elite. And Jesus is saying, it's not Smyrna that's the first. I am the first. And not only am I the first, I am the last. No one greater will follow me. Smyrna will fall and you can go and see the ruins of Smyrna. It's out of all the seven churches, the only city that still exists. It's no longer called Smyrna. It's the only city out of those seven that still exists. But the actual basic beauty of Smyrna is gone. It died thousands of years ago. But Jesus is still alive. His name still goes on. To be a citizen of Smyrna was to be part of the elite. And everyone used to boast. And there was a massive political climbing taking place within the community of Smyrna itself. And everyone was trying to get to the top of the tree to become the greatest citizen, the most prosperous citizen in Smyrna. It was the rat race that we know about so much in our own culture. And Jesus is reminding these Christians that though they're suffering, they belong to a greater kingdom. One whose leader is not just the first, but is also the last. He is the greatest of all. In fact, the first and the last is a title used in the Old Testament of God himself. You can read that in Isaiah 44 and verse 6. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Jesus was saying, forget the politics, forget the city. It is not as great as he thinks it is. I am the first and I am the last. Follow me. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, and he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And Jesus needs to be the first and the last in our lives because having that viewpoint, we will overtake and overcome the fear as we face the future, whatever the future may be in our church, in this country, 
and in the world. And he's not just the first and the last. He also then said, I am the resurrected one. He again was taking the title that the Smyrnians used to love. They used to say, we belong to the city of resurrection. We were born and, it were, and life was taken from us, but we came back better. We came back bigger. We came back more beautiful. And Jesus is saying, I'm not just someone who's come back. I am the resurrection and the life. In me, you will experience resurrection and life. He was saying of taking that title that that um, Smyrna boasted of and took it around and said I will give you life and this is life everlasting because the ancient city of Smyrna is no longer it is nothing more than a load of very attractive and very beautiful ruins but ruins nevertheless and Jesus told the Christians there in verse 11 the one who's victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death you see all of us have to face the first death it's a matter of biology. George Bernard Shaw said that famous statement, death is the ultimate statistic. One in one people die. And all of us here, all of us in the church and Washington online will one day face death. But the question is, will you face the second death? Because if you have Jesus running through your blood and running through your soul, then you will be immune to the second death. Because you have overcome the victory through the victory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then Jesus again takes this wonderful image that was so, so clear to the people who lived in Smyrna. He said he'll be the one who gives them a crown. And it won't just be a, a crown, it will be a real crown. You see, Smyrna was known as the crown of a, a, a Asia, the crown of Asia Minor. And we mentioned Mount Pagos, this mountain that rose 650 feet behind the harbour and had the golden necklace of a street of gold running through, uh, around its neck. On the top of it, there was an Areopagus. And the Areopagus was known locally as the Crown of Smyrna. Smyrna was seen as this wonderful harbour in this city, going up a hill and then rising on this mountain. And the mountain was seen as the head and the, and the street of gold was seen as the necklace. And on the top of the head, there was a crown, the Areopagus, the crown of Smyrna. And Jesus is saying, the crown I give you is far greater and far more beautiful and far more permanent than that crown upon that hill. There's two words for crown in the Greek language. One word which you'll probably be familiar is Diadema. And diadema is the word from which we get the word diadem. And it speaks of a royal crown. It's a crown of princes, the crown of princesses, the crown of kings. Diadema. But Jesus isn't talking about diadema here. He's talking, using the other Greek word for crown, the word Stephanus. Anyone who's called Stephen, you'll find your name is derived from the root Stephanus. And Stephanus is the laurel crown, like this crown here. It was a crown given to the Olympian, the athlete who was victorious in the games. But the thing about the Stephanus was that it was temporary. It was made of laurel leaves. Anyone who knows laurel leaves are great when they're young and they can bend them around and you can shake them and you can even spray them, put olive oil on them to keep them a bit fresh. But actually in the heat of Asia Minor, within a few months, they've become very, very stiff. Eventually they will become very, very brittle and they literally will just fall apart. It was a great crown to receive, but it was a temporary crown. 
But Jesus says this in verse 10. He says, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the victor's crown. I will give you, uh, uh, give you life as your victor's crown. Jesus offers us something that is non-material, that won't fragment and break. It is eternal. It is something that is wonderful. You see, Smyrna may have been the first in Asia, but Jesus is the first and last in the universe. And Smyrna may have been a resurrected city, but Jesus is a resurrected Lord and has the power to give resurrection to all his people. And Smyrna may have been the crown of ancient Asia Minor, but Jesus offers a personal crown to his followers that will not just last for the games, but that will last forever. In every way, Jesus was saying that their future was greater and better than any mere citizen of Smyrna. Jesus is almost saying, Smyrna, Smyrna, Smyrna. You belong to the kingdom of God. What you have in your hearts and your lives is so much more precious. And so he says in verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. In other words, a limited period. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. We know from church history that 12 Christians were martyred at Smyrna. And the last of these, and perhaps the most best known, was a man who was 86 years old, the Bishop of Smyrna, a man by the name of Polycarp. And Polycarp was a pupil of John. Remember the famous rival back in Ephesus where John was bishop? Polycarp had been brought up and taught and discipled by John. And became a very powerful, godly man in the city of Smyrna. And on Saturday the 23rd of February, 155 AD, the Bishop of Smyrna was executed by the mob in the arena at, at Smyrna. The police captain, who did not want to kill him, tried to persuade him. He said, what harm is it to you? Say Caesar is Lord to offer sacrifice and be saved. But Polycarp refused. They saw him, they knew him as a venerable old man, a godly old man. In fact, when they came to arrest him in a, in a farm, when they came to arrest him, he, he said, look, sit down and I'll give you some food. And he got his servants to, to make a meal for them. He says, just give me an hour to pray. And he went back upstairs and prayed for an hour. And he fed his captors. And the police captain didn't want to kill him. And we took him to the proconsul in the arena. And the arena were, were a mob and they were, they were shouting, kill the atheist, kill the atheist. And he debated with the, with the pro-council. And the pro-council says, say Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp said, 80 and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And the pro-council threatened to throw him to the beasts, but he still refused. And so he decided to threaten him with fire, the worst way to die. And that's the way he killed Polycarp. They searched for faggots and put faggots around his feet and tied him to a post. And they set light to it. And Polycarp prayed as he went to meet his Lord. Polycarp died, but he now lives. And I look forward to meeting him one day. And because there'll be no COVID in heaven, I'm looking forward to shaking his hand. And perhaps even giving him a hug. Because he was given a greater crown than even the crown of Smyrna. 
And you too will be victorious in the trials ahead of you if you stand tall, stand firm and claim the crown of being a proud citizen of heaven. Amen.